The Aims and Significance of the Palestinian War of Liberation That Israel constitutes an aggressive presence against our people from the outset is an indisputable fact. For our people, the rise of Israel has meant the expulsion of this people from its home and lands, the usurpation of all that our people had built through its labor and effort, the dispersal of our people throughout the Arab world and the world at large, and the concentration of the greater portion of its camps of misery and poverty scattered in Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, without hope and without a future. That Israel constitutes a colonialist expansionist presence at the expense of Arab land and its owners is not a matter for discussion. For us, it is the tangible experience before which all spurious claims and allegations fade away. The, quote, national home, unquote, for the Jews in Palestine became the state of Israel within the boundaries of the partition resolutions adopted by the United Nations in 1947. It then expanded to include Israel with its pre-June boundaries, which are far more extensive than those established by the United Nations Resolution of 1947, and finally expanded once again to include the whole of Palestine as well as Sinai and the Golan Heights. That Israel is an imperialist and colonialist base on our land and is being used to stem the tide of revolution, to ensure our continued subjection and to maintain the process of pillage and exploitation of our wealth and efforts, is a self-evident fact that does not need discussion. For us, this is not merely a theoretical conclusion, but represents our actual experience during the tripartite aggression of 1956, during the June 1967 war, and throughout the existence of Israel on our soil. However, the truth about our war of liberation has been distorted as a result of several factors. First of all, there was the connection between the rise of the Zionist movement and the persecution of the Jews in Europe. Then there was the association made between the rise of Israel and the Nazis' treatment of the Jews in the Second World War. In addition to these, there was the dominating imperialist and Zionist influence over large sections of world opinion, the existence in Israel of forces that claimed to be progressive and socialist, and the Soviet Union's and some socialist countries' support for the establishment of Israel. All these together with the air of certain Palestinian and Arab leaderships in the manner of their presentation of the struggle against Israel have distorted the truth about our liberation war and still threaten to distort the proper view of the true nature of this war in the eyes of many people. The Palestinian liberation movement is not a racial movement with aggressive intentions against the Jews. It is not directed against the Jews. Its object is to destroy the state of Israel as a military, political, and economic establishment that rests on aggression, expansion, and organic connection with imperialist interests in our homeland. It is against Zionism as an aggressive racial movement connected with imperialism, which has exploited the sufferings of the Jews as a stepping stone for the promotion of its interests and the interests of imperialism in this part of the world that possesses rich resources and provides a bridgehead into the countries of Africa and Asia. The aim of the Palestinian liberation movement is to establish a democratic national state in Palestine in which both Arabs and Jews will live as citizens with equal rights and obligations, and that will constitute an integral part of the progressive democratic Arab national presence, living peacefully with all forces of progress in the world. Israel has insisted on portraying our war against it as a racial war aiming at eliminating every Jewish citizen and throwing him into the sea. The purpose behind this is to mobilize all Jews for a life or death struggle. Consequently, a basic strategic line in our war with Israel must aim at unveiling this misrepresentation, addressing the exploited and misled Jewish masses, and revealing the conflict between these masses' interest in living peacefully and the interests of the Zionist movement, and the forces controlling the state of Israel. It is this strategic line that will ensure for us the isolation of the fascist clique in Israel from all the forces of progress in the world. It will also ensure for us, with the growth of the armed struggle for liberation and clarification of its identity, 
the widening of the conflict existing objectively between Israel and the Zionist movement on the one hand, and the millions of misled and exploited Jews on the other. The Palestinian liberation movement is a progressive national movement against the forces of aggression and imperialism. The fact that imperialist interests are linked with the existence of Israel will make our struggle against Israel a struggle against imperialism, and the linking of the Palestinian liberation movement with the Arab liberation movement will make our struggle against Israel the struggle of 100 million Arabs in their united national effort for liberation. The struggle for Palestine today, and all the objective circumstances attended upon it, will make of this struggle an introduction for the realization of all the aims of the Arab Revolution which are linked together. It is a wide and vast historical movement launched by 100 million Arabs in a large area of the world against the forces of evil, aggression, and exploitation, represented by neocolonialism and imperialism in this epoch of human history. Finally, the struggle for Palestine will, as regards the Palestinian and Arab masses, be a gateway towards the culture of the age and a transition from a state of underdevelopment to the requirements of modern life. Though the struggle we shall acquire political awareness of the facts of the age, throw away illusions, and learn the value of facts. The habits of underdevelopment represented by submission, dependence, individualism, tribalism, laziness, anarchy, and impulsiveness will change through the struggle into recognition of the value of time, order, accuracy, objective thought, collective action, planning, comprehensive mobilization, the pursuit of learning and the acquisition of all its weapons, the value of man, the emancipation of woman, which constitute half our society, from the servitude of outworn customs and traditions, the fundamental importance of the national bond in facing danger, and the supremacy of this bond over clan, tribal, and regional bonds. Our national long-term liberation struggle will mean our fusion in a new way of life, which will be our gateway towards progress and civilization. General Remarks this in general is our strategic view of the liberation of Palestine. The popular front for the liberation of Palestine adopts this strategy as a general guide of action. We must stress, however, that the correctness of any theoretical analysis is contingent upon its success on the field of practical application. It is only by revolutionary experience that the scientific answer to the correctness or incorrectness of any political theoretical analysis is given and no theoretical analytical attempt can provide fully from the outset a comprehensive view of things. The relation between thought and revolutionary action is a dialectical one. Thought directs revolutionary action, which in turn produces results, situations, and reactions that influence the theoretical view of things. On this basis, to the extent we stress these strategic lines as a guide to our action, we at the same time assert that we will not understand them in fixed, static forms. The experience itself will deepen and crystallize this view, enrich it and complete it in some of its aspects. It will also develop this view and may modify some of its aspects. Such a view of this strategy is the scientific dialectical view which rejects immobility and rigidity, undertakes criticism and self-criticism from time to time, benefits from experience and establishes between thought and revolutionary action an organic and reactive link which enlargens and deepens thought so that it will come to guide our action in a more proper and more correct manner. Any other view is, in point of fact, idealistic and rigid, leading to failure. Looking at it from another angle, this strategy represents a general view of the battle and its main trends and consequently does not stop at many of the details, interlinks in sinaitis, which will fill every phase of the battle and accompany each of its lines. For instance, in our definition of the main line of conflict, we have not stopped at the lines of conflict which will exist and react among the enemy forces themselves or within the ranks of the revolutionary forces. Thus, our definition of Israel as one of the enemy forces is not intended to convey a static picture of this force. 
Israel does not represent a homogeneous unity with which there is no room for conflict. There will be within Israel more than one politico-social force, and there will be conflict among these forces. The intensity of these conflicts may at times rise or fall according to the progress and phase of the battle. Although the conflict now existing within Israel between the so-called, quote, hawks, unquote, and, quote, doves, unquote, does not leave any appreciable effect on the image of the battle, yet the more radical conflicts within Israel that are now dormant may come out and gain in intensity during coming periods. Similarly, when we say that there is an organic connection between Israel and imperialism, we do not mean that there is no latent partial conflicts between them. Moreover, we witness at this time a conflict between Israel and the reactionary regime in Jordan, which sometimes considers its conflict with the resistance to be less significant with regard to it than its conflict with Israel. Also, we witness at this time the willingness of the Palestinian bourgeoisie outside the occupied areas to financially support the resistance movement. On the other side of the picture, there will also be a group of conflicts. The picture of the conflicts existing among the Palestinian armed organizations is clear at this time. Besides, the alliance between the Palestinian liberation movement and regional and Arab revolutionary action will not be entirely smooth and devoid of any conflict. Furthermore, in our presentation of the popular liberation war formula as the revolutionary formula for confrontation with the enemy, we must not fail to remember the fact that the conventional Arab armies of the national regimes will, in defending themselves as well as in their tactical attacks, play for a long time a military role, which may at times appear as the leading role in the stage of events, although in the long run, strategically, it is the revolutionary force that will remain behind Israel and world imperialism until radical national liberation is completed. The main line of conflict defined by this strategy is not a straight geometric line with two conflicting forces standing on either side. It is in reality a crooked dialectical line on each side of which stands a group of allied forces coexisting under the shadow of this alliance. At times this alliance grows stronger, and at other times the conflicts among them grow more pronounced so that the picture becomes sometimes a mixed and interwoven image moving along the two sides of the main lines of conflict. Inasmuch as it is important and fundamental to see at every stage of the struggle the accurate and detailed picture that will enable us to determine our tactical step in a scientific manner, it is equally important and fundamental that our detailed tactical view at each stage be guided by our long-term strategic view. It is this strategic view that will enable us to lead and direct the struggle and to avoid falling into the air of experimentation, impulsiveness, drifting behind events or reacting to events instead of acting to direct them. In light of this understanding, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine adopts this politico-strategic analysis as a guide for its action in the liberation war which the Front is facing and for which it is preparing. Organizational Strategy The People's Liberation War against imperialism with its technological superiority, its production and economic capabilities, its long experience in colonizing and exploiting peoples, Suppressing their movement and neutralizing their revolution with new techniques that are developed and adapted according to the circumstances of the age cannot be brought into existence nor can it continue and finally triumph in an automatic or spontaneous manner. The revolutionary party, which works for the generation of such wars and leads them to victory, is a condition sine quo non for any true radical revolution in our time. It is the party that provides a proper view of the battle and determines its strategy and tactics in light of its objective, study of the forces involved in the battle, and the points of weaknesses or strength in these forces. It is the party that provides the battle with its leadership and furnishes the frame within which all potentialities of the masses will be mobilized and directed to the winning of the war and the attainment of the objective. 
In light of this, party matters our understanding of the party, the basis of its construction, its class structure, its working technique, its institutions, the relations governing its basis of leadership, and relations between the party and the masses, no longer remain of secondary importance. Organizational strategy here becomes an integral part of the strategy of the battle in its view thereof. The theoretical discussion that has for some time been taking place between the revolutionary forces of Latin America, the Castroist parties, and the pro-Soviet or pro-Chinese communist parties, revolves primarily around matters pertaining to the structure of the revolutionary party that will lead the revolution. The failure of leftist national parties and communist parties in the Arab world is the failure of these parties themselves and of their structure, formation, and adopted strategies, and not of the principle of the party's existence as a condition for the revolutionary presence. The proof is that no revolution in this century has succeeded and continued in triumph, nor has any such revolution achieved radical change in the structure of society and given new life to the masses without a party to lead it, and provide it with the ideological and social class basis on which it rests and supports itself, so that it is able to continue to exist by virtue of its objective connection with it. No revolutionary party without revolutionary theory. The basis in the structure of the revolutionary party is the revolutionary theory to which it adheres. Without this theory, the party becomes a mere group moving spontaneously or empirically and cannot be the force that is capable of controlling events. Revolutionary theory means clear vision and scientific approach in the understanding and analysis of events and manifestations, and consequently the ability to lead. The revolutionary theory that presents all questions relating to humanity and the age in a scientific and revolutionary manner is Marxism. In the history of human endeavor to acquire knowledge, Marxism represents a unique attempt in understanding nature, life, society, and history. Marxism has presented a theory, dialectical materialism, that analyzes and explains nature and its motion and the laws governing this motion through a tangible, scientific material approach that is devoid of illusion, superstition, subjective meditation, and imagination in mere verbal or logical inferences. It has then applied this same tangible scientific material approach to the study of society, the movement of society, and the march of history, historical materialism, stopping particularly before the formation, structure, conflicts, and movement of modern capitalist society, theory of surplus value, and scientific socialism. Through all of this, Marxism has presented a dialectical scientific approach that has elevated the study of history, society, and political manifestations to the level of science. As the natural sciences are man's meaning for controlling the phenomena of nature and using them for his benefit, so is Marxism the science that enables man to understand the progress of societies in history and to direct and influence them. Lenin completed Marx's scientific efforts by applying the same Marxist method to the study of capitalism and its evolution towards the stage of centralization, monopoly, and colonization, thus explaining all political manifestations and events that attended the beginning of the 20th century. On the basis of Marxism and the socialist scientific approach, he was able to lead with success the first socialist revolution in history, to draw up its strategy, to face its problems, and to define the features of the top of the revolutionary organization which led it on its way to victory. In this way, Lenin gave Marxist theory its revolutionary modern applications, so that Marxism-Leninism has become the standard of revolution in this period of human history. Like all other scientific theories, this theory has passed its validity test on the experimental ground of actuality and practice, and has consequently acquired during the century all of its requisites as a science. The final test of any theory or law is the compatibility of the test with the theory or law, and this is exactly what happened in the case of Marxism. 
the October Revolution, the revolutions in China, Cuba, and Vietnam, and all revolutionary experiences throughout the world have arisen originally on the strength of this theory. This picture contrasts with the stumbling confusion and collapse of all revolutionary attempts that have not been based on this vision, this theory, and this guide. It is not a mere coincidence that the October Revolution and the revolutions in China, Cuba, North Korea, Vietnam, and the socialist countries of Europe have succeeded and stood firm in the face of imperialism, and in overcoming or beginning to overcome their state of underdevelopment, against the quasi-paralysis or infirmity characterizing the countries of the Third World, which are not committed scientifically to scientific socialist theory as their guideline for planning all their policies and defining their programs. The tangible materialist scientific pursuit of the events and revolutions of this century is the concrete proof of the validity of Marxist theory. Marxism as a revolutionary theoretical weapon depends on the manner in which it is understood on the one hand and its correct application to a particular circumstance or particular stage on the other. The essence of Marxism is the method that it represents in viewing and analyzing things and in determining the direction of their motion. Consequently, the revolutionary understanding of Marxism is the understanding of it as a working guide and is not as a fixed, rigid doctrine. Lenin and Mao Zedong, and before them Marx and Engels, have recorded on more than one occasion the need for the Marxist view as a working guide and not as a rigid doctrine. The essence of the Marxist view of human society is that it is in continuous motion and continuous change, and consequently any analysis presented by Marxism in respect of any stage or any actuality arises constantly from the old actuality. The invariable factor in Marxism is its dialectical scientific approach in viewing things in their state of continuous motion and change. This method is Marxism in its essence. It is the revolutionary theoretical weapon that enables us to view things scientifically in their stage of continuous motion, development, and change. Contemporary capitalism is not the same capitalism of Marx's time, without alteration or change, and the class structure of a backward society is not the same class structure as that of an industrial society. The nationalist manifestation which the European bourgeoisie tried to exploit to serve its interests is not the same nationalist manifestation appearing in backward countries, where nationalism acquires a revolutionary concept as the framework for the mobilization of enslaved peoples against imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. Understanding Marxism in a manner which enables us to take in all these differences and to benefit from the revolutionary theory provided by the revolutions of this century, and from all the theoretical efforts which have emanated from and enriched Marxism, instead of stopping and becoming fossilized as its frontiers, is in fact the scientific Marxist understanding of this theory. The contrary is true of any attitude towards Marxism as a fixed doctrine. Theory in the Marxist concept is constantly in a continuous dialectical relation with actuality and practice. The fact that it is in dialectical relation with practice means that it is in a stage of growth, progress, and modification, and not in a fixed state. The most dangerous thing that confronts us in our adherence to Marx's theory is understanding it in a mechanical, idealistic manner, which deprives it of its ability to explain the living actuality. The benefit which we obtain from reading and understanding the writing of Marx and Lenin is confined to the limits of knowledge presented by these writings, whereas the true benefit is that which we get then through our deep assimilation of these writings, we acquire the method presented by Marxism-Leninism in understanding, explaining, and confronting the problems of society, history, and revolutionary action. Marxism is a tool for analysis and as a working guide is the weapon that we seek by acquiring this theory. On this basis, adherence to Marxism-Leninism will not produce any effect unless such adherence results in using this theory and applying it in understanding actual conditions, 
And formulating the working strategy that determines the nature of the stage, the nature of the battle, the definition of the conflicting forces, and our view of the movement of this conflict, as well as through comprehension of the concrete circumstances through which we move. By this alone, that is, the application of Marxism-Leninism to our actual living circumstances and the battle that we are fighting, our adherence to the Marxist-Leninist theory becomes meaningful and capable of being translated into results. It would be a gross error to imagine that our mere declaration of adherence to Marxism-Leninism is a fairy wand that will open before us the road to victory. If there are examples of what Marxism-Leninism has represented in respect to certain revolutions, such as those of China and Vietnam, there are corresponding examples where adherence to Marxism-Leninism has not led to anything. The Arab Communist parties that are formally and verbally committed to Marxism-Leninism have not been able to lead the revolution in our homeland because their commitment has been verbal, or because they have understood the theory in a rigid and fossilized manner, or because they have not been able to apply this theoretical weapon to our actual living circumstances in such a way as to deduce from it a clear view of the battle and a sound strategy for its leadership. Our commitment to scientific socialist theory would be mere verbiage, mere illusion and escapism, unless this commitment means a mature comprehension of this theory by our leading members in the first place, and our party bases in general. Such comprehension cannot be achieved without a great study effort that must be exerted over a long period. On the other hand, the value of this commitment depends on the nature of our understanding of this theory as a tool of analysis, as a method in handling questions of revolutionary action, and as a working guide, and not as a rigid theory. The acquisition of Marxist-Leninist approach should be the purpose of this effort and study. Furthermore, the value of our commitment to Marxism-Leninism lies eventually in the application of this approach to the conditions of our struggle for the purpose of formulating revolutionary strategy and tactics. Unless we raise our commitment to Marxism-Leninism to this level, it will remain a commitment of intellectuals to a theory that serves them in discussion, and not the commitment of a revolutionary party to a theory that opens before it a clear view of the battle. Finally, the definitive usefulness of all this depends on the great efforts that must be displayed for the sound application of this strategy, for otherwise it would remain a mere plan that will not see the light of day. Such commitment to these meanings and results will prepare for the spread of leftist revolutionary thought among the masses of our people, and will enable this thought to overcome the obstacles laid in its way. The masses of our people will not define their position with regard to scientific socialist thought in light of a purely theoretical judgment of this thought. Their position will be defined in the light of the tangible results produced by this thought with regard to their fight against their enemies and exploiters. When this thought succeeds in converting the Palestinian and Arab field into a rising popular liberation war arena that will shake the Israeli Zionist imperialist reactionary presence in our homeland, as is taking place in Vietnam, these masses will realize that this theory was their most powerful weapon in their fight against their enemies. In this way, all obstacles both real and imaginary, which stand in the face of this theory today, will disappear. The thought that now prevails among our masses is the rightest thought because of the preponderance of reaction and colonialism. Moreover, the failure of the communist parties in their attitude toward the issues of the masses, such as those of unity, nationalism, and Israel, has produced in the minds of the masses a confusion between Marxist thought and these attitudes. To all this must be added the constant attempts by the reactionary and colonialist elements to distort this thought and present it as inimical to their national feeling and heritage. Finally, there is the distorted picture of this thought presented to the masses by the immature, infantile leftism that speaks of this thought in a manner that is not understood by the masses, a manner that appears strange to them and to the handling of their urgent problems. However, the positive results produced by the sound understanding and application of Marxism-Leninism 
will assure this thought of finding its way in our homeland so that we may be able on its basis to build our new life, our scientific understanding of life, and our new modern values. Within this context, the Popular Front adopts Marxist-Leninist theory as a basic strategic line for the building of the Revolutionary Party on a solid theoretical basis that will unify its thinking and view of the battle and will enable it to mobilize the masses to exert their efforts in one direction, which will make of them a solid force capable of achieving victory. Class Structure of the Revolutionary Party It is not sufficient to ensure the revolutionary theoretical structure of the party. This structure must conform to the class structure. The Revolutionary Party in the Palestinian field is the party of the classes of the revolution, the workers and peasants in the first place. When the party structure is actually based on these classes, then we are assured of the steadfastness, endurance, and revolutionary capabilities of the party and the soundness of its positions. However, if the structure of the party and its basic leadership is of the petite bourgeois class, then this party, regardless of its commitment to scientific socialism, will reflect the properties of this class as represented by its vacillation and hesitancy, its indecisive positions, and the possibility of its slackening and failure to stand firm in the face of challenges. True assurance as to revolutionary organization is based on the deep understanding of and commitment to scientific socialism in the first place, and on the essentially labor and peasant structure of the party in the second place. Such a class structure of the party cannot come about spontaneously. It requires a clear view and an effort directed in accordance with this view. Spontaneity and organization leads in practice to the preponderance of the petite bourgeoisie by virtue of the effectiveness of this class and its active interest in the political action at this stage against the weaknesses and ineffectiveness of the workers and peasants and the non-crystallization of their political and class consciousness. The Popular Front as a political organization does not at present conform totally with the toiling and proletarian class structure, which constitutes the material and concrete guarantee for the revolutionary character of the organization, its steadfastness, and its ability to go on with the revolution. The political organization of the Front constitutes in general a spontaneous extension of the organization of the Arab nationalist movement, so that the petite bourgeois structure prevails in it. The continuation of spontaneous growth without planned effort will result in confining our organization mainly to Amman and the towns, with some subsidiary extensions to the rural areas and camps. Our organizational programs must aim at placing our most efficient leading elements in the camps and villages, and it is therefore necessary to carry out a comprehensive survey of the rural areas and camps, and then to concentrate heavily on these areas. Also, it is necessary to pick up the rising young elements in these places and to build them solidly in theory and organization so that most of our leading members will have a revolutionary class allegiance. The presence of hundreds of members and leaders in the towns while we have no connection with many villages or with some camps and labor concentrations, however few these concentrations may be, indicates that our organizational growth continues to be spontaneous, that our revolutionary view of things is not clear, and that there are no effectively directed revolutionary plans emanating from this view. These hundreds of members and leaders must be deployed effectively in accordance with an organized plan to penetrate into the truly revolutionary concentrations. We will find ourselves before a solid political organization based on the poor, the toilers, and the downtrodden who are determined to revolt, to maintain their revolution, and to stand firm in the face of every challenge. In this way, we are assured of the revolutionary character of our organization, our political organization becoming a real support for the fighting cadres, providing them with the required revolutionary combatants furnishing real protection and effecting complete fusion with them. Political organization based on the petite bourgeoisie and the intellectuals whose roots do not extend to the villages and the poor urban districts 
cannot provide the fighting cadres with the required combatants, or constitute a protective support for the fighters. Furthermore, it may be in fact become a burden on the fighting cadres, aiming through its connection with the armed struggle at obtaining moral privileges, formalities, and superior positions of leadership, besides forcing upon the armed struggle the manifestation of personal and tactical conflicts and disputes that are sometimes concealed behind verbal conflicts, having no connection with actual fighting problems. Naturally, it is not our intention to have a political organization that is closed in the face of the petite bourgeoisie, but to have an organization whose basic material comes from the workers, the peasants, and the poor to ensure the organization's strength, steadfastness, discipline, and conscious practical direction towards the battle and fighting problems. In this case, such an organization is capable of mobilizing and recruiting within its ranks the revolutionary sectors of the petite bourgeoisie without falling victim to its hesitancy, vacillation, indecisiveness, and lack of application. The revolutionary intellectuals are a basic and necessary material for the building of the party and the revolution. In defining revolutionary forces in the underdeveloped countries, modern socialist thought cites the workers, peasant soldiers, and the revolutionary intellectuals. The intellectuals provide the revolution with a clear view, and they are naturally the material through which political consciousness passes to the working classes, as well as the capacity for administration, the organization of things, and planning for all aspects of action. Consequently, the presence of revolutionary intellectuals and their fusion into the structure of the party is a basic matter. However, the intellectuals' role in the building of the party and in the service of the revolution is contingent upon their true coalescence with the masses, combatants and revolutionary action in their acquisition, through practice, of the ability to stand firm and of the education connected with the problems of action. The intellectuals' presence in the party, outside the range of practice and apart from the masses and the fighting, may expose the party to the manifestation of verbiage that is in conflict with the real problems of action. The intellectuals living among the downtrodden masses and combatants, their willingness to learn from them as much as they teach them, their ability to share with them the same living circumstances, their intellectual modesty, their establishment of comradely relations with the combatants and the poor, and their avoidance of superior relations and of material moral privileges constitute the way whereby the intellectuals can perform their part in the revolution, and the non-observance or non-exercise of these matters will deprive the intellectuals of all capacity for revolutionary action. The revolutionary combatant refuses to establish superior relations with anybody. The aims of the revolution include equality, human dignity, cooperation, and human comradely relations, and the organization that prepares itself for the leadership of the revolution is expected to embody this picture. Our second strategic line in the building of the Revolutionary Party is to have the party material from the class of workers, peasants, toilers, and revolutionary intellectuals. Naturally, the adoption of this line is not sufficient to ensure this picture. A long period of hard effort lies before us in this direction. When our organization actually becomes an organization of workers, poor peasants, and toilers, when it actually becomes an organization of camps, villages, and poor urban districts, then we may rest assured that we have created this solid organization that supplies the revolution with its requirements and provides it with protection and ability to continue and take a firm stand. The Party and the Masses The party is the leadership of the masses. Consequently, the members and leaders of the party must come from conscious elements that are imbued with enthusiasm for action and are willing to accept sacrifice, observe discipline, and act in accordance with regulations and organization policy. The party must see to it that its members in general constitute an example in a vanguard in consciousness, activity, sacrifice, and discipline. 
If the party and its members lose these qualities, it naturally loses its role as a revolutionary political organization. However, inasmuch as the Revolutionary Party must maintain itself as an organization of conscious, active, loyal, and disciplined elements, it must at the same time be an organization for the masses, emanating from them, living in their midst, fighting for their causes, relying on them, and realizing its aims through and with them and in their interest. Mao Zedong says, quote, However active the leading group may be, its activity will amount to fruitless effort by a handful of people unless combined with the activity of the masses. On the other hand, if the masses alone are active without a strong leading group to organize their activity properly, such activity cannot be sustained for long or carried forward in the right direction or raised to a high level, unquote. It would be very useful for us always to remember this in our action. By understanding the dialectical relation between the party and the masses, we understand in a sound manner the party's role on the one hand and the masses' role on the other. The mass line is our third strategic line in the building of the popular front. To succeed in the building of the popular front for the organization of the masses, the purpose of each revolutionary political action must be deeply rooted in the heads of the organization members. The final purpose behind our action is the masses, the freedom of the masses, the dignity of the masses, the life of the masses, the fulfillment of their needs, the guarantee of their future. Keeping this purpose in our mind, making the members increasingly conscious of it and constantly reminding them of its importance, will help us always to follow the right direction in our work, will determine the measure of evaluation of our work, organizations, leaderships, and branches of action, will protect us from the dangers of seclusion, isolation, bureaucracy, superiority, opportunism, and preoccupation with petty internal matters, and will determine the nature of our activities and the direction of our operation. Sometimes our organization or some of its branches confine themselves to purely internal activities, meetings, education, discussions, criticism, etc. In the absence of a mass cause towards which the organization is directed, and in light of the organization's isolation from the masses and their problems and causes, the organization's life becomes closed and isolated, and will soon be swamped by the organization's problems and side issues, so that the organization will lose all capacity for revolutionary action. To look always to the masses, to handle the masses' problems, to work for the masses, to help the masses to understand and analyze their problems, and to adopt a position in respect thereof, to assist them in organizing themselves and to lead them in action to face their problems, this is our main task. The purpose of our existence, and it is our only way to muster the revolutionary strength that will enable us to achieve our aims. The mass line and our success in following it constitute a basic measure of the revolutionary character of the members, the organization's branches, and the political organization as a whole. Without this climate, the consciousness, the direction, we fall in the circle of seclusion and isolation. This would mean, first, the preponderance of side issues pertaining to the organization itself, and second, the ability of the opposing forces to encircle and strike us. The member who establishes the best relations with the masses around him looks for any service that he can perform for them, and is for those around him a factor of awakening and assistance as the revolutionary member. There are no grounds for claiming any revolutionary quality in respect of the member who does harm to the masses or isolates himself from them. The organization branch that sets up political forums, reacts with the masses and the problems and issues facing them, and looks for any service that it can perform for them, such as opening a school to combat illiteracy, or helping people in collecting the harvest, or advising them the establishment of a cooperative, or leading them in demanding an electricity or water supply project or the opening of a road, is a successful branch in giving the mass line a concrete form. Conversely, no organization branch can claim success or revolutionary action if it is enclosed within itself, confining all its time and effort to its internal organizational life, not feeling with the masses so that they do not feel its existence. 
The party which mobilizes for the revolution every man, woman, and worker, every peasant, every student, and every youth, orients constantly toward the battle and the revolution and leads them in their various political and mass activities. And the party whose basic organization is surrounded by student, labor, and peasant unions and organizations for women, youth, and cubs, or pioneers, is the revolutionary political organization for the masses. There is no ground for claiming any revolutionary quality in respect of an organization that lives in seclusion, away from the masses. Naturally, such a picture does not occur in a short time. The mobilization of the masses must take place at a speed that enables the organization to make of this mobilization a conscious and disciplined operation, neither spontaneous nor disorderly. However, the important thing is that we move in this direction, following it with firm, continuous, and sure steps, deeply realizing that the basic and final purpose of our existence is the masses, that we are all right as long as the masses are with us and as long as many positive bridges link us with the masses, and that any isolation or any movement of the masses away from us must constitute a warning or alarm signal requiring a critical review of our position and procedures. The party's leadership of the masses is not an easy process. It is not sufficient to have the intention, nor is it sufficient for the party to stress the importance of the mass line to ensure its leadership of the masses. The party's ability to analyze the situation, the mottos that it presents, the nature of the mass problems that it intercepts, the manner in which it presents all these questions, the pattern of the relations that it establishes with people, and the mobilization and organization formulas that it adopts. These are the factors that determine the party's success or failure in the leadership of the masses. The party will not be able to lead the masses if it presents issues that do not spring from their midst, or if it presents them in a manner that is not understood by the masses, or if it fails or hesitates to present some of the issues. Mao Zedong says, quote, to link oneself with the masses, one must act in accordance with the needs and wishes of the masses. All work done for the masses must start from their needs and not from the desire of any individual, however well-intentioned. It often happens that objectively the masses need a certain change, but subjectively they are not yet conscious of the need, not yet willing or determined to make the change. In such cases, we should wait patiently. We should not make the change until, through our work, most of the masses have become conscious of the need and are willing and determined to carry it out. Otherwise, we shall isolate ourselves from the masses. Unless they are conscious and willing, any kind of work that requires their participation will fail. There are two principles here. One is the actual needs of the masses rather than what we fancy they need, and the other is the wishes of the masses who must make up their own minds instead of our making up their minds for them." Unquote. Inasmuch as we must avoid the disease of rashness or leftist opportunism in the leadership of the masses, we must likewise avoid the disease of inaction or rightist opportunism. Here Mao Zedong goes on to say, quote, If we try to go on the offensive when the masses are not yet awakened, that would be adventurism. If we insisted on leading the masses to do anything against their will, we would certainly fail. If we did not advance when the masses demand advance, that would be right opportunism, unquote. Our emphasis on the mass line and the basic character of the masses should not be understood in an erroneous, idealistic manner, creating among the masses a sentimental, mystic view that would conceal from them the objective view of things and result in spontaneously trailing behind the masses instead of coalescing with them with the object of leading them. Our masses, like the masses in underdeveloped countries, are the victim of many outworn concepts, tribal, clan, and communal connections, and bad, anarchical customs, and traditions that are remote from the spirit of the age. Under this situation, our masses cannot be the force that is capable of achieving victory over the enemy that we have defined. The rallying of these masses around the party without such rallying being accompanied by efforts towards revolutionary political consciousness and organizational disciplinary consciousness 
would result in transferring to the organization all the diseases of the prevailing conditions, and this would be a gross error. The Revolutionary Party is the school in which the masses learn and change many of their habits, traditions, and concepts, substituting everything modern, new, and revolutionary for all that is old and outworn. On the other hand, our toiling masses, by reason of their material living conditions and of the fact that they suffer in practice the exploitation and subjection exercised by the anti-revolutionary forces, undoubtedly constitute in the strategic field real protection for the revolution from any vacillation, weakness, or slackening, but this would not mean that the masses are always right in assessing tactical political positions and determining their programs. In their positions, the masses sometimes represent sentimental and impulsive reactions that are unscientific in their calculations and unobjective in the evaluation of all circumstances. Consequently, it is wrong for the party to go along always with the state of the masses without any action or effect. The party must always remember the danger of compulsiveness in political action, and that its role is to lead the masses and not to straggle behind them, for otherwise it would lose the justifications for its existence as a revolutionary political organization. The relation between the party and the masses is a dialectical one. It teaches them and is taught by them. It affects them and is affected by them. They provide it with the facts and in this light of its comprehension and analysis of these facts, it provides them with a sound assessment of the situation and eventually with the working programs. Building the Combatant Party The strategy of armed struggle must naturally affect the strategy of the party structure so that the structure is based on the interests and requirements of the struggle in a manner which affects the structure of the party and the relations within the organization, the nature of its leading formations, its educational material, and its internal regulation. The basic aim of the Palestinian national movement is the liberation of Palestine. This aim cannot be achieved except through armed struggle and a protracted popular liberation war. If we lose sight of this fact, a great deviation will occur in our party in political action. There is no way of building a Palestinian national movement for the masses except through fighting and the masses' awareness that the demand for organization, mobilization, and political activity aims at escalation of the fighting, their only road to victory. Conversely, there will be no continued escalation of the fighting except through the mobilization of the masses with the object of furnishing the requirements of the struggle protecting it and supplying it with successive ranks of citizens to ensure its persistence, continuity, and the escalation of its effectiveness. This dialectical relation of coalescence between the fighting and political action constitutes the right criterion for our work. Putting into effect this concept of the Palestinian national movement in its two interrelated and fused aspects, fighting and political action, means on the organizational level confirmation of the following points. 1. The military organization that does the fighting must have a mature political structure. Confining our interest to the building of the military structure in a mechanical manner bears many risks. The combatant who takes up arms must know why, against whom, and for whom he is taken to arms. A sound political view of the relations with the masses protects the combatants from any errors that might lead to their isolation from the forces of revolution, imbues them with the capacity to stand firm, enables them to avoid short-term policies, provides them with protection from any acts of political sabotage that may be launched by the enemy defines their line of relations with any force carrying arms and mobilizes them at stated intervals for political mass action that will be useful to them in the fight and will strengthen their position. The politicized combatant alone is capable of standing firm in a long, hard battle like the one that is being fought by our people today. The acquisition by the fighting cadres of the revolutionary political view of things makes these cadres the vanguard of the Palestinian national movement and ensures the firmness, continuity, and non-deviation of the fight. Two. The political organization must have a military structure. However, we must keep in mind that this organization is auxiliary to the fighting cadres. 
It constantly provides us with successive numbers joining the military cadres and going into the battle. The greatest deviation that could occur is the building of the political organization in a haphazard manner without such an objective being completely clear, with the result that we would find ourselves with an organization which wanted to take moral or political advantage of its formal connection with the struggle, without this organization being an integral part of the fighting cadres. Such a deviation would create a great conflict between the fighting cadres and the political organization which would adversely affect the march of the revolution and make the political organization a burden on the struggle instead of a support to it. The political organization whose aim is to link itself with the combat in order to obtain the identity of affiliation to commando action, the battle dress and all other insignia without being truly prepared to join the fighting would constitute an obstacle in the way of revolutionary growth and would force the party to live under circumstances of constant conflict between the fighting cadres and the political organization. The political organization must be built for continuous efflux to the battle, and its task must be to provide military protection for the struggle, i.e. popular resistance. It must live in the same conditions as the fighting cadres, and its constant daily task must be to exert continuous and exhausting efforts in the service of the struggle and the fighting cadres. In this way, we can build the unified fighting party and avoid any serious conflict between fighting and political action. 3. The party's leadership must eventually be politico-military leadership possessing political consciousness on the one hand and the capacity to lead the fight on the other. From time to time, the leading positions must be reshuffled to enable the political organization to become appreciably familiar with all the questions and conditions of the fighters and the struggle so that its judgments will be sound and understand all working problems in the military sector. Conversely, the military organization must be made familiar with all working problems in the political field. 4. The internal education of the party must aim at building the political and military structure at the same time. Military education in relation to the political organization must be as basic as political education. Similarly, political education in relation to the fighting cadres must have the same importance as military education. Leadership cadre training must at the same time be military and political training. 5. The basic effort of the leadership must be directed towards the issues of the combat, the solution of its problems, and the fulfillment of the requirements for its escalation, steadfastness, and continued growth. All organizational, political, information, and financial efforts must be linked with the interests of the combat and for the combat, and not at the expense of the combat, and all this is expected to be reflected in the distribution of the leadership in all party programs, budgets, and patterns of action. 6. The party's integral regulation must be laid down on the basis of the fusion and unity of the fighting and political organization, and on the basis of the existence of the fighters and the issues of the combat in the very life of the party and its basic leading group. The organizational picture towards which we are looking is that of the single fighting party, some of whose members take part in the actual fighting, others prepare for combat while a third group forms a popular resistance that protects and supports the fighting. A fourth group works among the masses, explaining to them the fighting issues and moving the masses towards serving the combat, and a fifth group performs the financial, administrative, and information tasks that serve the fighting. All these groups and the branches are one in the same organization led by the same ranks of leadership that are at the same time responsible for fighting, organization, and political action in a unified interlock system. The motto says that, quote, every combatant is a party member and every party member is a combatant, unquote traces before us a basic strategic line for the building of the fighting party in conformity with our view of the Palestinian national movement and of the liberation struggle. Democratic Centralism Basis of Relations Within the Revolutionary Party The revolutionaries who meet around a revolutionary theory and a working strategy and combine together in a political organization to fight for these principles 
need to define the manner in which they must organize their work. For example, how shall the leadership of the organization be determined? How shall it be changed in the events of such change being necessary? How shall relations be established among the various ranks of the leadership? What are the relations between the leadership and the members of the organization? How shall the organization face its problems and contradictions? How shall it settle its political positions where there is more than one point of view concerning the position at issue? How shall the organization keep discipline and preserve the unity of the party? How can it make of the party relations the basic relations among the members of the organization to which all personal, family, regional, or other relations shall be subservient? How can the organization discover qualifications among its ranks and open before the qualified elements opportunities to show their responsibilities that are commensurate with their qualifications? How can the organization maintain that strong discipline that is indispensable for the success of the party in execution of its policy and programs without the discipline being at the expense of the member's dignity or rights or the development of his personality? The determination of the organizational method with which the party must face all these questions is a basic condition for the building of the Revolutionary Party, the regulation of its affairs, the preservation of its unity and mobility, and the increase of its effectiveness and cohesion. Unless this method is clarified, defined, understood, and adhered to by all members of the organization, the party will, in facing its problems and issues, experience a series of complications, contradictions, and haphazard or individual actions which paralyzes it and prevents it from facing in a revolutionary manner the revolutionary cause of the masses for which it was originally established. Democratic centralism is the basic principle on which all revolutionary parties that have led the revolutions of this age have been established. Consequently, the validity of this principle of organization does not rest on its soundness from the theoretical point of view alone, but basically on its validity as established by practice and the experiences of revolutionary action. Democracy inside the party means the right of every member to know the party's strategy, political positions, and main plans, and the right to discuss and express opinions on all these matters, and to present his opinion in full freedom on all matters, even though his opinion may be wrong. The right of every member to know everything within the limits of the party's security, his right to discuss party strategy and positions without any restriction, and his right to criticize and stand in the face of error must be a protected legitimate right, and this is the foremost meaning of democracy. It is the duty of the leaders to listen to the combatants and members, to think well of what they say, to acknowledge the validity of any sound scientific criticisms of the work, to benefit humbly from every sound opinion, and to endeavor to correct any faulty opinion among the members through dialogue, discussion, and persuasion. The revolution needs the enthusiasm and exuberant vitality of all and needs to benefit from their qualifications. This cannot be achieved unless the members feel that the revolution is theirs and that they are its protectors from any deviation. The way to this is the members' freedom of discussion, dialogue, and criticism. The collective leadership is another aspect of democracy within the organization. Collective leadership ensures the prevention of any individual authoritarianism or deviation, guarantees a certain measure of self-control over the members of the leadership, and a certain measure of dialogue, discussion, and viewing things from more than one angle so that the party's positions may be as sound as possible. Whatever the gaps in the collective leadership may be, the treatment of these gaps takes place through the distribution of responsibilities and obligation on clear lines, and not by doing away with the principle of collective leadership. The party's reliance on a leadership backbone consisting of graded groups of policymaking and executive collective leadership ranks will provide the party structure that is capable of standing firm, facing hardships and preventing deviation to the greatest possible extent from every angle, and of reaching the soundest possible positions and plans. The third aspect of democracy within the revolutionary organization is the members' right to express their opinion of their leadership, 
and its responsibilities to grant or withhold their confidence in this leadership, and eventually the member's power to change the party's leadership in the event of their proved failure, incapacity, deviation, and erroneous concept of responsibility, where this erroneous concept is reflected in the pattern of their relations with the membership. The leadership that does not enjoy the member's confidence cannot be capable of mobilizing them and at the same time maintaining strong discipline and creating an atmosphere of activity and enthusiasm. The member's right to change their leadership is the objective control over the leader's actions, their sense of responsibility in every position taken or action performed by them, and their assiduity in developing their qualifications so that they may rise to the level of the leading functions shouldered by them. The attempt to define democracy in terms of these three aspects in spite of their importance does not, as a matter of fact, suffice to provide full and thorough clarification of the essence of democracy and all its values, meanings, and translations, nor does it suffice to produce full clarification of the effect and positive influences of democracy on the structure of the organization and the increase of its effectiveness. Continuous revolutionary democratic education is the only way that ensures the realization of the essence of democracy, all its translations, and even all its positive influences. It must be emphasized that the understanding by the responsible leaders themselves of the meaning and importance of democracy and their endeavor to give it a concrete form is even more important than its understanding and practice by the members. Here, democracy becomes a collection of values, criteria, and working traditions that are reflected in the pattern of relations within the organization. Here, democracy becomes a genuine desire to know the members' opinions, to live among them, and to avoid isolation from them and their problems by holding open forums and collective meetings, establishing comradely relations among all, and avoiding superior relations. It will shy from bureaucratic relations, prevent responsibility from being converted into any material or moral privilege, and avoid exercising responsibility in a manner that is not compatible with the member's dignity. Also, we must extricate ourselves from all customs and traditions inherited from the class society in which we were brought up and establish relations of mutual respect, objective appreciation of qualifications instead of formal courtesies, adulation, and servility. There must be open-mindedness among the responsible leaders so that, instead of being impatient with criticism, they will encourage it and endeavor to enhance their members' moral courage and develop their manliness and revolutionary attitude. Thus, democracy becomes a revolutionary human life pattern within the organization before it assumes the form of a collection of regulations and internal rules. Democracy is only one of the aspects of the basic principle that is at the root of relations within the organization, the principle of democratic centralism. To understand this principle from only one angle leads to the greatest dangers, and it must be clearly understood that democracy without centralization will result in complete anarchy, digression, and lack of discipline, and consequently in paralyzing the party and rendering it incapable of uniform motion towards the execution of its plans. The party needs to adopt political positions in light of developments. It needs to lay down plans that it must follow and draw up rules and regulations to control its conduct. In the course of discussion of these matters, it is natural that there should be more than one point of view, position, or opinion. The party cannot continue forever to argue around these matters until everybody is satisfied as to the soundness of a particular position. After a reasonable period of discussion about its problems, positions, and programs within the frame of its collective leadership, the party needs to take a position to adopt programs to confirm a decision. This normally takes place according to the majority view, and the position or decision taken may not obtain the agreement of all without exception. What then is the solution? Must the organization remain paralyzed without taking any position while discussion goes on? Must each member go out to speak his own opinion according to his own understanding of things? This would mean anarchy or paralysis. Democratic centralism provides the solution. 
The solution is the minority's submission to the opinion of the majority, and in this way the organization maintains its unity and ability to move. Every point of view inside the party is entitled to be presented in full freedom within organizational channels. However, after this point of view is discussed in the party, the majority takes a definite position concerning it. Then it is the duty of every element in the party to sponsor this position and defend and be fully committed to it until another organizational occasion arises for discussing anew the matters of work in the party congresses and planning bodies. This is the first aspect of the centralization concept. The second aspect is the subsidiary leadership ranks, submission to the higher leadership ranks, and the consideration of the central leadership of the organization, to be decisive authority in all basic matters, and to be entitled to criticize all positions or decisions taken up by any leading group below it. The party's action in any field, area, or department may affect the conduct of the party as a whole, and any mistake committed by a particular leadership rank may affect the party's fate or future. Consequently, the way to control party matters, preserve the unity and harmony of all party plans and activities, and prevent any gross error or deviation by the party's branches or departments, is the central leadership's right to criticize any decision taken by any subsidiary leadership rank. Naturally, this does not mean the central leadership's intervention in every act undertaken by the party. It only means that it has the right to intervene when, in its judgment, such intervention is necessary to protect the worker's interest. The third aspect of the centralization concept is the leadership's absolute power during execution and the shouldering of full responsibility for the execution of what the party has democratically decided. When execution begins, democracy ends, and so do discussion and debate to give way to obedience, discipline, commitment, and full submission to obstruction. Without this, we cannot build the highly disciplined revolutionary party that is capable of prosecuting the hard and long liberation war. The principle of democratic centralization lays a sound foundation for all relations within the organization. It is the principle that combines between the members' rights and duties between freedom and order. The understanding of this principle by all members, their comprehension of all its meanings, their constant endeavor to view it from both its opposite, yet united sides at the same time, and an honest and responsible effort by the leaderships and members to apply this principle provide the biggest guarantee for the building of the revolutionary party that is capable of leading an armed revolution in a hard, protracted liberation war. This principle provides the basis for the collection of other organizational principles that govern the organization's life, collective leadership, leadership among the ranks of the members, interaction between leadership and rank and file, submission by the minority to the majority, no ideological contradictions and factions within the Revolutionary Party, individual submission to the organization, submission by all party branches to the Central Committee. This basic principle and the principles emanating from it serve to determine the internal regulation and the collection of basic rules that define relations, powers, responsibilities, penalties, and rewards. All this completes the general picture of the party's internal life as a disciplined democratic revolutionary organization. Criticism and Self-Criticism The practice of self-criticism and education of the party's leaderships, cadres, and members, in the practice, in a sound manner, provides the party with a big guarantee for the discovery and correction of errors, and consequently for the continued growth of the party, instead of allowing it to end in failure or incapacity resulting from these errors. Since no party or individual can avoid mistakes in work, the practice of self-criticism converts error into benefit and negative attitudes into positive ones. Stopping to evaluate our work from time to time, placing the party and its policies and activities on the dissection table once in a while, and following up scientifically all the positive and negative attitudes reflected in the revolutionary cause by the party's policies, 
programs, and positions are matters that furnish the scientific revolutionary mentality with which the party can overcome errors and develop work programs in light of practical experience and eventually lead the work on to success. Accordingly, the party's leaderships and members must accustom themselves to listening to, thinking of, and benefiting from criticism, and instead of trying to cover up the error upon its discovery, admitting it and deciding to correct it. However, sensitivity or emotion in confronting criticism leveled at the party by the members and the masses will lead to isolationism, persistence of error, and failure to benefit from the remarks made by members and sympathizers, and will raise a wall between the party and the masses. The leadership, which is confident in itself and its honesty, is that which welcomes criticism and listens to, thinks of and benefits from it, admits error when it occurs, tries to correct it, and is always ready for development and renovation in light of practical experience. The practice of criticism as regards the Revolutionary Party is the method whereby the party breathes in new air, breathes out unhealthy air, and eventually renews its vitality and capacities in a continuous manner. Mao Zedong says, quote, Conscientious practice of self-criticism is still another hallmark distinguishing our party from all other political parties. As we say, dust will accumulate if a room is not cleaned regularly. Our comrades' minds and our party's work may also collect dust, and also need sweeping and washing. The proverb, running water is never stale, and a door hinge is never warm-eaten, means that constant motion prevents the inroads of germs and other organisms. To check up regularly on our work and in the process develop a democratic style of work, to fear neither criticism nor self-criticism, and to apply such a good popular Chinese maxism as, say all you know and say it without reserve, blame not the speaker but be warned by his words, and correct mistakes if you have committed them and guard against them if you have not, unquote. Our emphasis on the practice of criticism must be accompanied by our emphasis on the group of criteria that make criticism a weapon to strengthen and not weaken the party. There are three basic criteria that must be taken into account. One, the objectivity of criticism. Two, the orientation of criticism toward the correction and not towards demolition and destruction. And three, it's dealing with basic matters so that the party's life may not be drowned in petty subjective issues. In fact, we deem it very important to point out that these criteria are found clearly in the organizational revolutionary thought which has directed the greatest revolutions. Consequently, they are not criteria laid down by the leadership of the Popular Front to put criticism into effect or to brandish it in the face of its critics. Concerning the criterion of objectivity in the practice of criticism, Mao Zedong says, quote, In inter-party criticism, guard against subjectivism, arbitrariness, and the vulgarization of criticism, Statements should be based on facts and criticism should center on politics." Unquote. Regarding the orientation of criticism towards correction and not towards destruction, Mao Zedong also says, quote, "...but our aim in exposing errors and criticizing shortcomings, like that of a doctor curing a sickness, is solely to save the patient and not to doctor him to death. A person with appendicitis is saved when the surgeon removes his appendix. So long as a person who has made mistakes does not hide his sickness for fear of treatment, or persist in his mistakes until he is beyond cure. So long as he honestly and sincerely wishes to be cured and amend his ways, we should welcome him and cure his sickness so that we can become a good comrade. We can never succeed if we just let ourselves go and lash out at him. In treating an ideological or political malady, one must never be rough and rash but must adopt the approach of curing the sickness to save the patient, which is the only correct and effective method." Unquote. Concerning the necessity for criticism to deal with basic issues, he adds, quote, 
Another point that should be mentioned in connection with the inter-party criticism is that some comrades ignore the major issues and confine their attention to minor points when they make their criticism. They do not understand that the main task of criticism is to point out political and organizational mistakes. As to personal shortcomings, unless they are related to political and organizational mistakes, there is no need to be overcritical and to embarrass the comrades concerned. Moreover, once such criticism develops, there is the great danger that the party members will concentrate entirely on minor faults, and everyone will become timid and overcautious and forget the party's political tasks." Unquote. The practice of criticism within these criteria must constantly be a manifestation accompanying the life of the disciplined Democratic Party. This is the Front's organizational strategy. Through these lines, our thorough comprehension of them, and our adoption of them as a guide in the building of the organization, we are able to make the Front a revolutionary party, the proletarian party that acts in close contact with the masses and directs their movement, the party that is capable of practicing armed struggle, the ever-revitalized disciplined Democratic Party. Undoubtedly, many of our organizational difficulties at this time are due to the fact that the Front was not originally built in light and under the guidance of this strategy. We should be grossly mistaken if, in our analysis of our existing organizational diseases, we remain bound to partial and personal interpretations. Complete clarity of our organizational strategy and the long and painful efforts which we display within the organization to drive our organizational problems, which in reality are general and common, in varying degrees, to all the political organizations which now rally around commando action. This does not mean that there may come a time when the Revolutionary Party will live without problems. Such thinking is unrealistic and unscientific. Our ambition is to outgrow the problems of this stage of the organization's life to face the problems of a more advanced and more revolutionary stage. The Arab Nationalist Movement, ANM, and the PFLP at its inception, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine was formed of the Arab Nationalist Movement's branch in the Palestinian field. The, quote, Heroes of Return, unquote, and the, quote, Palestinian Liberation Front, unquote, and independent elements which soon took the form of a fourth group within the Front. On this basis and in the light of this formation, it was not designed that the Front at the first stage of its life should present a complete leftist political view of the liberation battle, proceeding from and based on scientific socialist theory. What was implicitly understood actually was that the Front should present a general liberation thought, bringing progressive features that would crystallize more and more with the crystallization of the experiment. This is as regards the Front's political thought. As regards organization, it likewise was not designed that the Front should at this stage of its formation be a unified party organization based on the same revolutionary organizational strategic lines that we have discussed. What was also understood was that the Front would for some time continue to consist of a group of organizations each of which would maintain its independent existence. However, there would be a beginning made to the planning for coordination among these organizations and an attempt to unify the educational material given to them in preparation for the realization of a climate that would pave the way for the unification of these organizations in the strategic planning in the light of practice and experience. In light of this picture, it is evident that there is a definite objective distinction between the organization of the Palestinian branch of the movement, A&M, on the one hand and the front on the other. The movement, in light of what was designed by the Central Committee during the July 1967 session, possesses a socialist revolutionary concept through which it views the strategy of the Palestine liberation struggle. While the Front presents a liberation thought with its progressive features, moreover, the movement represents a unified party organization preparing to rebuild itself according to a revolutionary organizational strategy, while the Front represents a group of organizations that differ in their organizational structure. 
Consequently, the nature of the picture and the nature of relations at the time of formation of the front was that of an organization possessing a scientific revolutionary view and entering into a front relation with other organizations within a front which presented a progressive liberation thought and was formed of a group of independent organizations tending toward unification. It was natural, such being the case, that the movement should have its distinctive existence and its distinctive role within this front. This is the gist of the picture of the time of formation of the Popular Front. However, the developments and schisms that have occurred within the Popular Front place us now before a totally different picture and consequently present a new picture of the subject of the movement and the Popular Front and the relation between them. The Palestine Liberation Front has separated from the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, and with it a group of independents. The Front continued to exist between the Palestinian branch of the Arab Nationalist Movement and the Heroes of Return. On the other hand, the new situation has enabled the ANM to present through the front its revolutionary analysis of the Palestinian situation and its full political view of the struggle for liberation, that is, its complete political thought, so that the new picture is one of almost complete identity between the ANM and the Popular Front. The Popular Front's political thought is that of the ANM in full, and its structure is to a great extent the same of that of the movement. The ANM's organization constitutes in size a high proportion of the Popular Front's organization. If we take into account also the nature of the origin of the Heroes of Return, the rules that govern the organization of their first leading cadre, their general intellectual atmosphere and the nature of comradely relations between the A&M and the Heroes of Return, if we take all these points into account, then we may say to a large extent that the formation of the Popular Front is largely identical within that of the movement. If there is identity in thinking and in formation, any specific strategic distinction between the A&M and the Popular Front no longer applies. Any insistence on maintaining the Palestine branch of the Arab nationalist movement independent and distinct so that one may actually feel that the A&M is one thing and the Popular Front is another should be based on a well-defined objective and tangible distinction. What is the thing on which the movement's distinctive existence rests? Is it the political view? The Popular Front's political view of the battle is now that of the movement. Is it an organizational distinction? It is true that the presence of the Heroes of Return within the Popular Front constitutes a special organizational issue, and it is also true that the speed with which the Popular Front was organized has made this organization, as regards certain organizational characteristics, less solid and less disciplined than that of the movement. But is this sufficient to direct our strategy towards maintaining the movement's special and distinctive organization within that of the Front? In light of this analysis, the February Congress drew the organizational strategic line to direct and guide future relations between the A&M and the Popular Front. This line consists in working for the fusion of the Palestinian branch of the A&M within the organization of the Front, and at the same time working for the fusion of the Heroes of Return within the Front as well, and in planning and working for raising the Front's organizational life to the level of the conscious, disciplined, revolutionary, committed party life. On this basis, the conception of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine ceases to be that which prevailed at the time of its foundation. That is a front in the usual political sense with regards to thought and organizational relations, and our understanding of the Popular Front and the direction that we take in building it have become something different. According to our present understanding of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and the direction that we take in its building up, it is the revolutionary party based on the political strategy and organizational strategy set forth in this report. During the process of complete fusion of the movement and the popular front, the sound motto that guides us is, quote, the movement in the service of the front and not the front in the service of the movement, unquote. 